Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Uh, I never thought I'd live in a world where I could call Jim McKay, aka Bones, a three-time guest on this podcast, but uh, he keeps saying, whenever you want me, I'll come back, and I'm going to take you up on that every time, Bones. Are you kidding? Uh, I'm, count me in. I'm having a great time doing them, so uh, let's fire away and do it. All right. We uh, are are here to obviously, this is, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday of Tour Championship Week. Uh, I wanted to catch Bones before uh, the Tour Championship. He's going to be working obviously this week, but we want to talk about the upcoming Ryder Cup. He's going to be covering it and calling it on the Golf Channel and NBC next week. But this is the first Ryder Cup since I believe 93 that you won't be caddying in. Caddying in. Is, it gonna, is it killing you not to be there uh, as a caddy? It's it's a tough one to miss. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I had a tough time the week of the Masters this year. Uh, you know, missing that out, and 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 of course this Ryder Cup. You know, I I, I caddied for the first time in '95, but in '93 I went over on my own nickel just to watch because I'd wow. always been fascinated by the event. And Phil had won a tournament a couple of weeks before, so I had a couple extra dollars. And uh, I, I just think it's the greatest sporting event I've ever witnessed, you know, considering what those guys are playing for and the fact there's no money involved and whatnot. So uh, it's tough to miss, but uh, I'll be very, very happy and, and, and grateful to be inside the ropes and checking it out from up close working for NBC. What, uh, how much have you seen or what have you seen the most uh, evolve over the years? How has the event changed since your first one in 95 or even the one you saw in 93 to compared to what it is today? Wow. It, it's just become so big. Um, I, when I went over in 93, just to watch, I, I was going to be outside the ropes and, and uh, was there literally a matter of minutes earlier in the week. And, and they asked me to come inside the ropes and work for the team. So basically, it, the best way for me to answer your question is now there's all these assistant captains and assistant caddy captains, if you will, to, to you know, leave no stone unturned in terms of taking care of people, taking care of the players and the caddies. And there was none back in 93. So I ended up being a gopher, if you will, for the team and just running errands all week long. And um, there was literally a situation uh, in 93 when the players were about to tee off on Friday. Uh, Davis Love and Tom Kite were going to be the, f- the first group out. And there was a two-hour fog delay. And uh, those guys were hanging out in the team room, just climbing the walls because they basically told them, you, you've warmed up now. We're going to come in and grab you guys and we'll go straight to the tee when it's time to go ultimately. So the players are in there just kind of wasting time, just, you know, just itching to get out there. And Fred Couples was going through everybody's bag. The bags were neatly stacked against the wall. They're standing up and was going through everybody's bag, looking at clubs. And he went over to Davis Loves and was looking at one of his irons, took out his nine iron, waggled it, and the head fell off the shaft What? and bounced down this marble staircase. And we all happened to be standing there, and we're just – everyone's just aghast. Everybody heard this thing bounce around and saw what had happened, and this man comes in the front door of the team room and said, Mr. Love, Mr. Kite, you've got five minutes, and we're going to go tee off. 
So <laughs> Davis Love grabs this head of this and the, and the shaft and gives it to me and says, go get this fixed. So there I was, a guy who just the day before had been over there just to kind of watch and take in this Ryder Cup. And I was running across these fields somewhere in northern England looking for some guy with a trailer with epoxy on it. <laughs> and <laughs> and this is not the the era of equipment trucks all exactly. over the place. Exactly, no Titleist truck, no Callaway truck, no anything. It was literally some guy who had this homemade trailer that was there just in case a disaster happened. And we found the guy, got the club, re-epoxy, gave it to him. And later that week on Sunday, Davis came to the last hole, had to make par on the last hole to win the Ryder Cup. Hit this amazing drive, hit a short iron on the green, and two putted to win the Ryder Cup. And came over to me and said, "That was your nine iron that no. you got fixed." that he'd hit into the green. So it was like kind of my uh, welcome to the Ryder Cup moment and one of the greatest memories I've always had of that event. I've never heard that story. Is that one you keep holstered or have you told that one before? I've told it a couple of times somewhere, I guess. Um, so going into going into 95 then, how long had you been on Phil's bag leading up to uh, le- leading up to Oak Hill there? He was 25 at the time. And uh, on this on this U.S. team, that's kind of a normal age, but he was he was a baby on that team and in that era. He was. I'd started working for him halfway through the year in 92. He came out in June of 92, and you could have made the argument that he, he, he could have potentially have been a pick in 93, but, uh, but, the, but the timing of it just didn't work out. So I just remember you know, grinding away with him, trying to uh, accumulate as many points as, as he could to, to, to try and make that team there in 95. He had a really good U.S. Open at Shinnecock, which to some degree iced the deal. Uh, and, and then we got out there in 95 and it, it was, it was just, you know, you're so jacked up and excited. And, you know, as a caddy, you get this box in, in the mail with your clothes in it and your first Ryder Cup rain suit. And I just can't tell you how excited I was. And, and, and 95 turned out to be a very exciting Ryder Cup uh, for a number of reasons. Do you have that, all that gear kind of memorialized anywhere in your house or in a closet somewhere or anything like that? I absolutely do. That's that's the crazy thing about caddying for a guy that made 22 straight teams is that you have <laughs> 22 rain suits somewhere in your house that drives your wife nuts, but that you'll never get rid of because they mean so much to you. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, coming in, he's 25 years old. He goes 3-0 and in 95, pairs up with Jay Haas um, in one of the matches, and he and Corey Pavin was the first partner he ever had. How, what is kind of, what was Phil's process like for finding partners? By my count, he's had 15 different partners over the year, over the years. Has that process changed into the later part of his career? What's that like trying to match him up with somebody? He's always just been a put me out there coach and I'll win a point for you kind of guy. Um, you know, he's certainly later in his career when he, you know, became more established, won tournaments and won majors. He would, you know, go to uh, the coaches and say, hey, you know, this guy's struggling or this guy lost a heartbreaker of a match the day before. Put me out with him. But early on, he just wanted to play. And and on uh, Friday of that particular Ryder Cup in 95, uh, Friday morning, the first day, he did not play. And so we were sitting in the team room, you know, you know, hitting some balls, getting ready to go Friday afternoon. And, uh, you know, a few a few hours into these first matches, they on TV said, OK, well, here's the Friday afternoon best ball pairings and the pairings came out and he his name wasn't in that either and we're like oh my gosh we're not playing the entire day and and that's an extremely tough situation to be in uh it turns out a mistake had been made and they'd posted the wrong names and and they clarified that mistake got it figured out and phil did indeed play but i'll never forget we got we went out there with Corey pavin and uh 
he hit it on the first hole at Oak Hill there and to Phil missed the green, chipped it up there a foot. And Corey had 40 feet for birdie uh, there on that first hole. And he hit this putt and the putt was about 10 feet from the hole. And Corey turned his back to the ball and started walking to the second tee. And the ball <laughs> went right in the middle. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and uh, they went on and won that match. And, and you referenced playing with Jay Haas, played with Jay Haas the next day and actually played against Ballesteros, which was – you know, uh, uh, just a, an experience in and of itself to see Seve kind of going through his whole kind of Ryder Cup thing. He wasn't playing very well, but was doing everything he could to affect the match. And uh, it, it was just, it was an amazing time. Oh, man. Corey Pavin's low-key got some pretty amazing tour sauce in some moments. He was he was he he loved the uh, the move of making a long putt and then just walking off to the next hole and making somebody else get the ball out of the hole. I love that. Um, so what? So ninety seven is the next one. The U.S. loses in ninety five. Go to ninety seven. This is Tiger's first year on the team, and Tiger's the, now the young guy uh, at Valderrama. What was? Did that feel kind of in some way like a changing of the guard? Did that take some of the pressure off some of the other guys having Tiger there? What was that like having that guy introduced to that uh, kind of team element? Well, it was also new at that point. I mean, he had obviously come on the t- on the scene late ninety six and you know, with a lot of fanfare, but you never know what's going to happen. And then, of course, he goes out there and dominates the Masters, and everyone's realizing, oh, my gosh, th- this guy is more than for real. He is potentially the man. Um, and, you know, you get into that team room, and I remember, you know, everybody wanting to play with him. And, uh, you know, it was – we felt really good after we, – we, the Ryder Cup that we lost in 95, we should have won. The team had a two-point lead going in the last day playing in the States, you know, and uh, some guys didn't play well on, on Sunday and, and, and we lost. And so there you are in 97 and, and, you know, you're up against Seve Ball- a Seve Ballesteros coach team, if you will. And uh, on a very, very, you know, tricky, not very American golf course. So with Tiger in the fold, you know, we were all looking to, uh, to get back to, you know, some kind of a team win. And uh, though it didn't happen, it was it was very, very interesting to have him over there and, and spend time with him because, you know, while you see each other at work the other 51 weeks of the year, you, you really, really get to know guys at team events. And, you know, everybody really liked him and and was fascinated by him. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, for, for obviously the beginning of a long run of him playing in team events. How has his demeanor in team rooms evolved over the last 20 or so years? I mean, from what I gather, it seems like he, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like in the beginning of the process, beginning years, he was a just a, the way he approached things was very much from an individual basis. And from all, all reports from 2016, he has fully embraced this kind of team and kind of captaincy role. Have you seen that kind of evolution with Tiger involved in team events over the last 20 years? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question. And, and with good reason that early in his career, he was just out there destroying people as an individual. And, 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 you know, part of his MO, if you will, was, was just to kind of, you know, he was out there to, to win. And, and, and you wouldn't have, you wouldn't in a million years call him a win at all cost guy, but he was out there, you know, he's to just to, to beat people and to win tournaments and, and, and more power to him. And he did that. But to your point, as as he got a little older and as you know as time goes by he got more and more involved in in the process of these team events and then when they put this task force together after the 2014 Ryder Cup in Scotland that we lost so badly i mean he was a huge huge part of it and uh my some of my greatest memories or fondest memories of all these Ryder Cups that i've been lucky enough to do was 
how involved he got in 2016 there at Hazeltine and, and was, you know, basically, you know, like a co-head coach, if you will, with, uh, with the Davis love, you know, their, their co-captaincies in a sense and, and, and how, how invested he was in calling guys and talking to guys. And, and he was a big part of that last win. And I, I think it's great that uh, he's, uh, he's where he is. And, and I think he, he's the captain of the next president's cup team. And he's all in. And when Tiger's all in, it's, it, it fires you up. It seems like, and I don't know what kind of information you're privy to on this front, but I've heard I've heard things uh, heard it mentioned that uh, only to only expect Tiger to play three total matches in the upcoming uh, in the upcoming Ryder Cup, one match each day. Do you have any any insight on that, or would that surprise you if that ended up being the case? Well, I, I think that it's easy to say that about guys that are picks. You know, I think that, 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 that you know, it, it would just be natural in a sense to say, okay, well, these, you know, two, three, four guys are picks and they're, they're more likely to play less than guys that made the team on points. But I also think, on the other hand, that, you know, if you get a team that's, that's dominating, that, that, that things will change quickly. I mean, if you put, you know, let's just say you put Tiger and DeChambeau or Tiger and Reed or whoever it turns out to be out there and they're, they're not only winning matches, but they're they're beating people up, so to speak. I think things will change, you know, in a hurry. I, I think there's always, you know, you're always going to have those plans as you head in. But the bottom line when you get there is you want to win and you want to win as comfortably as you can and take as much pressure off the players as you can. So I could see that changing once you get there, if some team steps up and really starts hammering guys. And it seemed like, in, and I don't mean to jump around too much between years, but on that on that topic, in 2012, Phil and Keegan were absolutely destroying guys the first three sessions. And it seemed like Phil was insistent upon, listen, we are not playing Saturday afternoon. We are putting all of our energy into Saturday morning. Is it a very real thing that if you run a guy out there for the first four sessions that, the, that you just have to be drained by the time Sunday comes around? Well, you know, one of the things I want to find out prior to, to this, this Ryder Cup we're about to do on TV is is what guys' records are on Sunday that have played the first four matches. I, I was told once that they don't tend to play as well in singles, but you also got to remember that particular Ryder Cup there in 2012 that you're referencing, it was maybe a year, year and a half after Phil had been diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis. And, and, and he, he was saying early in the week, I can't go all four, no matter what the circumstances are and, and be effective there on Sunday. So he had let them know, but, um, it's, it, it, you know, a lot of it's got to do with, you know, how you're feeling physically and whatnot. And certainly he and Keegan were, they won one of the matches. They won Saturday morning, I think seven and six. So they weren't out there a long time. But uh, they had they had given uh, Davis Love plenty of heads up, I think, as to what they were thinking. And uh, and, and again, you've, you've got to kind of trust what, what your body's telling you, because uh, as that week turned out, you know, even with a four point lead, no lead is safe in the Ryder Cup. And you've got to have some energy there on Sunday. Yeah, I just found that uh, I found that interesting because I think it's a similar kind of question going into this one. And that 2012 team was very deep. This 2018 Ryder Cup team for the U.S. is also very deep. So it wouldn't surprise me if every player sat out at least one session. Whereas on the European side, they've got a very very strong top eight or nine, and it wouldn't surprise me if you know Justin Rose and Rory and 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 maybe even Rom and Fleetwood are out there going all all four team matches. Does that sound like something that would fit into a plan? Uh, if you were Ryder Cup captain for each of those teams, does that sound like something that uh, might be implemented? 
Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're, you're right. And it ultimately gets down to who's, you know, who's playing well and how many of, uh, of these guys are ultimately getting it done for you. But uh, to your point, you know, looking at this Ryder Cup coming up, I mean, if you get John Rahm playing well and certainly Rory, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine unless they built some in, in some, you know, incredible lead that those guys would sit out. But they're, you know, they're they're young guys. And, uh, you know, they're they're very healthy guys and, and you've got to you've got to ride the hot hand. Um, I think in, in, in that case, you know, back in 212, it was just a question of a guy who wasn't uh, uh, feeling as up to it as he otherwise would have been. And, you know, wanted to do right by the team and be very upfront with the coach. So I'm curious to get your take on this. It kind of was uh, I've always viewed from a TV perspective and watching from afar that foursomes was the much more difficult format and that uh, if you, your players that are a bit more streaky, you maybe throw them in four ball and your guys that are more consistent and uh, just straighter hitters would be foursomes. But it kind of clicked for me when I went in 2016 and watched foursomes how how play doesn't need you don't need to be super exact in foursomes. You just need to you know keep the ball in the planet you know per se but in four <laughs> ball the it's actually i felt like it was more pressure because you have to pin your ear, ears back and have to make birdies do you is that is that kind of a, a fair thing to say about how captains approach who plays four ball and who plays foursomes i think so yeah i i, I certainly think that putting the ball in play off the tee is is paramount in terms of the foursomes um is you know and what we're learning about this course that uh, that we're going to here in in in, in Paris uh, for this upcoming Ryder Cup, you know, it's apparently a layup course off the tee, if you will. Uh, you know, you're hearing stories about Justin Thomas playing in the, the French Open earlier the, early this year and hitting seven drivers in four rounds. So, um, you know, to your point though about maybe not having to be that exact. I mean, you got to keep in mind that in in foursomes. There are going to be holes, plenty of holes, one with par. Mm-hmm. And when you get to ultimately to the four balls, obviously, you, you you better put the ball in play off the tee, to, as you said, and get the ball on the green. And what's what's very important in, in four ball is to have two putts at it. If you continuously have, you know, two 15, 20-footers or closer for birdie on these holes, you're putting a tremendous amount of pressure on the other team if they're not doing the same thing. And ultimately, you're going to make putts and wear them down. Yeah, no, and I I just found it interesting. People are saying, you know, you, they only wanted to pay because it seems like rookies don't play a lot in foursomes. But I think that's even a, a tougher ask to ask rookies to go out and play four ball and really be really be on and make a ton of birdies. Hello, friends, hombres, schwaldos. The merchs are here to tell you about the Callaway Rogue Five Wood, the number one fairway wood in golf. Well, all right, number one's probably the Rogue Three Wood which is an absolute RPG off both the fairway and the tee. But when I'm looking for more control into longer par 3s and gettable par 5s, the 5-wood has been my go-to club. A high, lazy ball flight that falls softly from the sky? Sign me up! It certainly silenced the chorus of losers that say it's lame or soft to carry a 5-wood. Yeah, don't knock the 5-wood until you try the Callaway Rogue. Alright, enough from me. Let's get back to story time with Bones. Smell ya. From a, from a caddy perspective, so I, I don't, I'm curious. I have, honestly have no idea what this is like from your first Ryder Cup to now. Are caddies paid to be at the Ryder Cup? Do, do players pay the caddies? Does the PGA of America? I honestly have no idea how that works. 
the uh, the PGA of America uh, gives you a little, you know, thank you stipend at the end of the week. Um, and it's it's very nice of them considering they're obviously picking up, you know, every dollar of any any potential expense that you might have but but the but the truth is that caddies would pay to to, 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 to caddy in a Ryder cup and uh, you know i've i've said forever that you wish that all your friends that, that you caddy with on the tour that love caddying that, that that do it as as a serious job for a number of years you wish that every one of those guys or girls would have the opportunity to caddy in the Ryder cup because you know, you'd swim over to Paris to, 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 to do this or take a canoe or whatever the case may be. It, it's got nothing to do with the money. You, you're just, as I said, so excited to get in that team room and to get your rain suit and to be a part of it. And it's just such an honor uh, that uh, the fact that the PGA of America does give you a few bucks at the end of the week is just uh, icing on the cake because uh, it's just an honor to be there. What in that regard? There was leading up into '99. There was conversation around players being paid to play in the Ryder Cup. Did, uh, did the way that was portrayed in the media was that was that a, was that fair to the players? I felt like the players really got looked at as being greedy. The ones that actually said something about it, and Ben Crenshaw kind of doubled down by 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 not supporting the players that said anything. But from the inside, what was that kind of pay for play discussion really about? Um. I on it, my take on that was that was one guy I think that had that on his mind who who said it publicly or maybe tried to generate a little bit of momentum with some other players in terms of bringing it up, and uh, and, and I I can't I can't understand you know what what his point of view was I mean it's uh, you know certainly the PGA of America and the and the uh, the European Tour does very well as a result of owning this Ryder Cup and we all know what a huge event it is but. Uh, you know, if they wanted to do, you know, I think they they give the players, you know, if I'm not mistaken, money to donate to their various charities and and their foundations, and that's great. But uh, to to you know, I remember when it went on, it was very uncomfortable, and and I I think you know two or three people got associated with that movement that wanted nothing to do with it, and uh, I think uh, in my years. You know, being around that event, that was the the only guy that uh, that uh, ever wanted uh, you know some kind of you know reimbursement, if you will, for playing in the event, and uh, that went away very quickly. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that foundation money is how it basically ended up being settled. Was that that uh, players were were able to contribute money to a to a foundation that came from the PGA of America? But I was always always curious to just to you know you you've been through so many eras with this cup. I could go on with a million different questions. But leading up there to ninety nine, uh, there was some uh, take us there to Phil ended up playing his uh, singles match against Yarmo Sandlin. Uh, take me through kind of what what there they had some uh, some history together leading up to the event. What was that like, and what was the animosity factor like leading up to that match? Wow. Uh, I, I figured we'd get to Yarmo at some point here. So. <laughs> I made it like 20 minutes. <laughs> so in 96, they used to have this tournament, the old Dunhill Cup, back in the uh, 80s and 90s. It was this phenomenal event that they'd have in the fall at St. Andrews where you'd get three players from 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 certain countries and you go over there and you'd play against other other teams, if you will, and you know whoever won two matches or what have you would advance, and it was this great kind of knockout competition. And early in Phil's career in '96, he made the team. We went over to St. Andrews with Stricker and Marco Mira and played these matches, and it was just you know it's it's one thing to be at St. Andrews; it's another thing to be there that time of year. It was kind of cold and fun, and 
and the U.S. team was playing well. This was at a time when Stricker was a bit of an unknown quantity, and you know, guys from other countries didn't know who he was, and he was just crushing people over there. And it was so much fun. It was this great week, and and uh, this guy Yarmo Sandelman was playing for Sweden, and they were playing uh, they were playing South Africa, and I believe the quarterfinals and uh, Phil and I were watching it from his hotel room. We'd already won our match earlier that day and the U S had advanced and we were going to play the winner of uh, whoever won these matches. And Yarmo Sandlin was playing in a, in a playoff. He, I think he had tied Nick price and uh, they were playing, playing it off on the first hole at St. Andrews there to see who would, uh, who would win the match. And Yarmo made a putt and put his, put the uh, the putter head up against his shoulder in kind of like a shooting motion. And, and after he made this putt to beat Nick Price and shot at Nick Price, so to speak. <laughs> and we were just sitting there just dumbfounded as to what we were watching. And, and a lot of, a lot of locals, a lot of people in Scotland were very offended by this because it was either weeks or months removed from a, school shooting in scotland uh, that was just absolutely horrific and tragic and a number of people uh, kids lost their lives and it was it was a pretty tone deaf thing to do to say the very least not to mention the fact that he was doing it to nick price who i think at the time was maybe the number one ranked player in the world and if i'm not mistaken also his caddy squeaky who uh who who passed away way too young was was maybe in in poor health at the time so there was a lot going on with nick and and it was just stunning to see this happening. And 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 Phil said to me at the time, "My gosh, if that guy ever did something like that to me, I, I don't know what I'd do." So you know, as sure enough, you know, the, you know, the Swedish team advanced, and uh, and of course we get them. The U.S. gets them the next day, and the pairings come out, and it's Sandlin versus Mickelson. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And uh, we went out there and played the match, and. Uh, uh, to Yarmo's credit, he was playing pretty well. The other, our other two guys, O'Meara and Stricker, were going to win their matches, so the U.S. was going to advance. But on the uh, 12th or 13th hole there in San Andrews, the next day, he he made a five or six footer for par to go, you know, into increase his lead over Phil, and did the same thing. He put his putter up to his shoulder and shot at Phil in this kind of shooting motion, and it was just like, you know, Phil wasn't having it, and and Phil let him know on the next tee that he absolutely wasn't having it. And, uh, it was, a, it was in, in my years as a caddy, you know, w one of the more tense situations that you get involved in out there. And it was like, uh, Holy cow. And these guys were, were nose to nose at one point. And, uh, and, you know, Phil was not, you know, at that point, a major winner or a guy that had been around a long time, but he was a very accomplished player and, and, uh, Yarmo less so. So it was just, it seemed disrespectful, and so when you fast forward, sorry for taking so long, but you fast no, forward this so is an long, amazing so story. far to the 99 Ryder Cup, you know, all, you know, three years later, you know, Yarmo didn't get, he didn't play at all the first, uh, the first two days. There were two or three guys on that team, Coltart, uh, Yarmo, and uh, maybe Vandeveld that didn't play the first two days. And, uh, you know, our team is, is, is four points down, um, we're, we're getting our butts kicked. It, it wasn't that our guys were playing poorly. It's just the, the, the European team was just amazing. And uh, th for me back then in 99, this is, this is pre internet, pre, you know, s cell phones, all this stuff. And when we left the golf course on Saturday night, none of us had any idea what the pairings were. And I just remember going home and saying a small prayer, driving in my car back to the hotel 
anybody but Sandalin. <laughs> and and sure enough, we got to the course the next day, you know, and, and there it was, you know, 12 guys on each team, this supposed random draw and Phil gets Yarmo in singles. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh. So we get out there the next day and, you know, we hadn't seen the entire week, the guy the entire week because he hadn't played. And he comes striding to the tee and Phil's there and it's it's tense. And I remember NBC was doing the golf and they'd sent Mark Rolfing out there to cover this match because they knew there was a history between these two guys. And and one of the craziest things happened uh, on the second green. They they have the first hole. Went to the second hole, was a really tough par three. Phil hit a six iron to about 30 feet. And then Yarmo hit this six iron that never left the flag. And we heard this, you know, kind of gasp, if you will, from the American fans behind the green. He literally almost hole it, almost made a hole in one. The ball went about two or three feet behind the hole. And we got up to the green and I'm cleaning Phil's ball and I hand it back to him. Phil's going through the process of reading his putt and Yarmo is just standing there. He's done nothing with his golf ball. It's still three feet behind the hole. And it's definitely some, a putt that you want, you know, you're not going to give to him. It wasn't close enough. But what we didn't realize, and I came to find out later from Yarmo's caddy, is that Yarmo had something like a special coin that he always marked his ball with. And somehow he had a hole in his pocket. And between the first green and the second green, he'd lost this lucky coin or the coin that he used to mark his ball. And he had nothing else to mark his ball with. So he says to his caddy, give me a coin. The caddy's got nothing. So they're not going to ask me. They're not going to ask Phil. He's standing there behind this ball on the second green, and he's got no coin to mark his ball with, nothing. And literally, literally you hear this voice from the crowd, some guy, some spectator that kind of picked out what had been going on. A guy goes, hey, yo, Yarmo, you need a coin to mark your ball? And Yarmo turns around and goes, as a matter of fact, I do. And all of a sudden, coins come raining out of the crowd. And I swear to you, Chris, <laughs> we were there. It was just this incredibly surreal moment where there were 20, 30, 40, 50 coins rolling across the green that spectators had thrown <laughs> at him. So we're out there picking up coins. Uh, you know, Yarmo finally picks one up, marks his ball, misses the three-footer. And then topped oh it off the next tee, and Phil went on to, uh, to to win the match. He topped it? He did. He hit a fairway wood off the next tee and kind of cold topped it, hit it in the heel and, you know, dribbled it, you know, I don't know, 100 yards down, wherever it went. But uh, he was uh, – it was just this crazy, crazy moment. Uh, he topped it off the tee. Phil won the hole and went on to win the match easily. Oh, my God. That's an amazing, amazing story. That was that was worth the journey to get there. What uh, What is the most – I mean, that might be the answer, that, that match. But what is, uh, maybe other than that, what is the most contentious moment you've either seen or been a part of or heard of happening in the Ryder Cup since you've been caddying in them? Oh, wow. Well – Let's see. Uh, that that was certainly was that I was that I was personally involved in. Um, you know, you just it, it's it, you, you take these things really, really personally, you know, and, and you're, you're playing for your for your team and you're playing for your tour and you're playing for your country and everybody wants to win really, really badly. And it, everyone's friends at the end. That's the bottom line. And and it, it, as poorly as uh, as the U.S. did there for a stretch there in the tournament. We, we would always, the kind of inside joke, if you will, amongst the caddies was, well, we lost the Ryder Cup, but we always win the party on Sunday <laughs> night. And we would have these uh, great, great team parties and, you know, you're uh, drowning your sorrows a little bit. And ultimately, the European team uh, would come over to our room and, and it would end up being a, a big, you know, collective blowout, if you will, on Sunday night. And it's it's no hard feelings 
in the end, you know, everyone's kind of you give the guy a hug and you have a drink with him and then laugh. And it's 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 a, it's a great, great event. And, and it, you know, nothing too overly contentious goes on. You just got got you have guys that really, really want to win. And, and, you know, you know, certainly, you know, in 99, when when uh, a loss ball uh, play had that match against Justin and Justin made that, you know, historic putt there on 17 green, you know, there were some hurt feelings there, obviously, with with you know how you know, we reacted when Justin made that putt. But uh, but but in the end, it was just guys. You know, it was a, what I would consider a natural reaction to a guy making a putt at a time when we desperately needed it for us to win the Ryder Cup. I'm curious as to what what you think the main differences are between a Ryder Cup in the U.S. and a Ryder Cup in Europe in terms of how the fans treat the event. Are is one side a bit more hostile and more personal towards the players, and how how are they different? How do you see the difference between the two? I I don't see much of a difference. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, s- s- some things were said about what went on in the last the last Ryder Cup there in Minnesota. And I don't care where you go. You know, if, if, if you've got, you know, 30, 40,000 people out there, there's going to be, you know, a dozen guys, you know, a dozen guy, folks that have, you know, maybe a few too many beers and, and get involved in the competition. And, and, and that's why Hazeltine, you know, when, when that happened, you had guys on our team that, that made a concerted effort to say, hey, you know, knock that off. And, you know, we had a match against Rory at one point where guys were being disrespectful and and uh, we tried as much as we could to 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 stop that from going on and to explain to people that, you know, you got to show the proper respect. And and because, A, it's the right thing to do. B, Rory, such a great, great guy and a first-class competitor that you want everybody to play on the, the same kind of playing field, if you will, a level playing field. But, you know, it goes on everywhere. And, and, and for, 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 for those folks that can recount stories of what goes on here in the States in terms of crowd behavior, we can recite, you know, similar stories about it going on overseas. So it, it happens everywhere. You've just got to shake it off and play and, and, and not use it as an excuse. You know, specifically for this Ryder Cup, the U.S. is going to come in as the favorite. Does this team seem different to you than some of the other years that the U.S. has been the favorites and has uh, walked away very disappointed? Wow. Well, I just think that this is building up to be maybe the most epic Ryder Cup ever played. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that certainly the U.S. team is stacked. Uh, They look, you know, incredibly strong. You know, you've got Tiger... You know, let's 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 not forget, you know, Tiger wasn't a uh, you know, this wasn't some kind of present they gave him in terms of being picked for this team. He was absolutely deserved of a pick and, and is playing incredibly well. And he brings that presence and the whole kind of Tiger aura to the competition. He's playing incredibly well. Um, the U.S. team is very, very strong. But but I think it, it's easy to get caught up in that and overlook how good this 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 British te- excuse me this European team is. And uh, you know, you, while uh, you can make a lot of you can have a lot of discussion about this so-called rookie thing that they have going on, but I don't I don't care. Tommy Fleetwood's not a rookie. You know what I mean? This guy's played world class golf now for a number of years, and he knows what he's getting into. He's he's not only seen these competitions played out over the years. You know, he's played this golf course in France a lot. And, and and this is a huge thing about the Ryder Cup being played in Europe is that they tend to have the competition on courses that they play year in, year out on their tour. And we don't necessarily do that. And so they're going to this very 
tricky golf course from what I understand where you don't hit a lot of drivers and they've all played there quite a bit. That's a huge, huge feather in their cap. So while I think that on paper you could say, okay, my gosh, the U.S. team is a definitive favorite, I think there are other factors in play here that, that, that could result in this competition being just devastatingly you know, competitive. And just you – know, I, I have a feeling that the Monday, Tuesday after this Ryder Cup, we're all going to be talking about it for some time. I hope that's the case. And, I, you know, it's easy for, for younger people to kind of be have recency bias and want to say this is going to be the greatest Ryder Cup of all time. But for someone that's been involved in it for 20 plus years and seen how much just how much this event has grown uh, for you to say that it's going to be one of the one of the epic ones that that validates a lot of what we're thinking, I think. And uh, man, I couldn't be much more excited about it. But um, so that era from 2002 to 2006 was a very dark one for us golf when you guys when you guys showed up at those Ryder cups did you arrive thinking you had a chance to win those events or what what was kind of the 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 vibe like going into some of those well you know it, it was it, the thing a lot about the Ryder cup is is momentum and and we had this negative momentum if, that you're trying to overcome and uh you know people it was tough because, you know, you'd, you'd be play, playing regular tour events around the country and you'd run into fans of golf and fans of that event. And they'd say, my gosh, you know, great plan last week, uh, Phil or whomever. But gosh, can you guys just win a Ryder Cup? And 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 the response to that is, oh, my gosh, you know, the team's trying so hard that that, that you can in, at some point get in your own way a little bit because you want to win so bad. And because there's so much pressure on you because you haven't been performing that well in the tournament and, and getting it done. So, you know, we were trying to reverse this trend, if you will, in, in 02, 04 and 06. And, you know, some teams weren't as strong as others. And, and two of those three were overseas. But again, it, that no excuses. You're just getting beat and, and it, it sucked. And, um, you know, But what I do think about some of those Ryder Cups was that it was, you know, some of what went on in in those Ryder Cups and others was the foundation for what ultimately happened in 2014 with this task force. And, you know, the the task force thing there, you know, it was a bit of a, a, you know, people were kind of trying to make it a bit of a joke there for a while or a bit of a punchline. But there's no doubt about it, in my opinion, you know, certainly relative to the team's win in 2016 and now moving forward, that those guys getting together after the 2014 Ryder Cup and saying, OK, we're not running this operation properly. We're getting outthought, outmaneuvered, outworked by this other team. We, we, we've got to take on a lot more than we have and, and, and take this far more seriously than we have. I have a plan that we're going to follow in Ryder Cup after Ryder Cup and, and, and implement this plan and, and maybe get it done. And, and I think that, uh, that this task force that the people try to make fun of there for a while is a, is a big part of the reason why I think that the U.S. is going to have some success here moving forward. Yeah, I was gonna getting ready to ask about that because I wanted to know that in 2014 was it was it evident that there was dissent building up regarding the leadership of that team? And in my personal opinion, I think that uh, what Phil said after the Ryder Cup, it was it felt and seemed very personal at Tom Watson. But if you really read closely at what he said, it it was more of an indictment of the entire process. Um, and so was that kind of momentum building up before that event even began in the middle of the event and just kind of bubbled up at, uh, right into that press conference or how did you, or was this kind of a thing that you saw playing out pretty easily? Uh, it was, you know, an, an, an absolute 
indictment of the process. It's to use your words. And um, I mean, this had been building for some time. I think, you know, you could it was you could have a problem with the way, you know, the, the, the captains were selected. And I'm not talking about Tom Watson. I'm just talking about generally speaking over the last 15, 20 years. Um, but again, I think the players also all want to be part of the process. And you, you can't you can't go to a guy. You can't go to a guy the day before the matches start and say, OK, you're going to go. You're going to now play with this guy and you've got, you know, today to get used to his golf ball or whatever the case may be. You know, you've got to take these things very, very seriously. And, you know, again, you know, to kind of, you know, reiterate how how well the Europeans were doing it. They go so far as to having control of their tee times over there on the European tour. So the captain of their Ryder Cup teams was basically putting guys together on Thursday and Friday or, or calling the tour and say, put these two guys together so they could get used to, A, one another, being around each other, seeing how they play, um, spending time together on the golf course because they were thinking some months down the road is putting them out together you know, in, the, in some kind of format at the Ryder Cup. And they, they, there was just, they weren't leaving anything left to chance in terms of uh, you know, how far they would go to win these things and the setup of the golf courses and all this stuff. And, and we weren't doing that. And, and it had to happen. And at some point, collectively, these guys had to get together and, and, and get some kind of uh, movement you know, that turned out to be this task force to get it fixed. And, you know, certainly, you know, Phil took it upon himself to kind of get this ball rolling uh, and, and you can like it or not like it. But the reality is that a tremendous amount of positive, you know, in terms of the U.S. Rudder Cup uh, movement came out of this and, and it had a lot to do with the with the win in Hazeltine. Yeah, uh, honestly, one of the one of the kind of quotes or looks at it that kind of had the light bulb go off for me was Bubba being an assistant captain in 2016 and him walking away from that process, being in the team room and not being a part of it and realizing like, internally to himself, like, hey, I'm kind of a trouble guy here. Like, I'm, I'm way too particular about who I get paired with and I'm a burden on my captain instead of being a contributor to my team. And I just think, like, Phil, if he, it seems like Phil is an assistant playing captain and obviously Tiger was an assistant captain in 16 and has relinquished that role to play in it. But it, it just seems like these guys are almost having this playing captain role of – Look, there is nowhere else to put the responsibility of anything if this goes wrong. And I think that with your, their backs against the wall, they're just more likely to perform better. And Phil, in the last three Ryder Cups, I think, is 7-3-1. and one. A lot's been made about his Ryder Cup record uh, over the years, but it seems like we're in this kind of different era of understanding what the responsibilities are, where they lie. And they just, you're so ingrained in the process now that there's nowhere else to look and it's time to just deliver. Is that a fair way to look at it? Absolutely. It is. Yes. And so on that note, you know, a lot gets made out of, you know, Tiger and Phil's overall Ryder cup records, not matching up to their individual uh, accomplishments uh, in stroke play events and in other style events. Is there anything that you kind of being up close and personal to it, any reason that you equate it to that? I just think that uh, certainly, you know, in 18 holes of, uh, of, uh, of match play, you know, anything can happen. And certainly you're out there playing with partners, you know, the first two days and only, you only get a chance to play as an individual there on Sunday. I would just say, Hey, you know, guys get up to play them. Um, you know, we certainly, as I pointed out earlier, we had guys putting a lot of pressure on themselves to play well and, and to win because the, the team, 
you know, we just hadn't won many Ryder Cups. And I think that uh, as a team, it, you know, it was it was a lot of heat and, and we kind of got in our own way a little bit there for for several years. But uh, I think also you have to, you know, tip your hat to the other team. I mean, they were uh, they were they played those guys really, really stepped up into the Ryder Cups. And, you know, the 04 Ryder Cup that, that, that everyone made so much uh you know, so much hay about in terms of Tiger and Phil playing together there at Oakland Hills in 04. We played, uh, uh, let's see, we played Monty and, uh, gosh darn it, Padraig Harrington on Friday morning in, uh, I think, alternate shot, or excuse me, in best ball. And, and, and they lost that match. And, and Monty and Harrington played unbelievably well. And, and, and Monty may not have won a major in his career, but he was an unbelievable Ryder Cup player. And at some point, you just have to tip your hat to those guys and say, you know what? They just flat out beat us today. Yeah. And it's his singles record, I think, was like 6 0 and 2. And uh, yeah, and I just go back. The record thing is, it's, I think, with that big of a sample size for those guys, it's hard to say. You know, it's just, it's all random. But like somebody like Phil, Phil shot, what, 63 the last day at Hazeltine and only got a half out of it with Sergio because cause that's what Sergio shot as well. And I think that um, Tiger ran up against Nick Colsart's shooting 62, I think, that uh, Saturday afternoon. Um, or I think it was, right. I think it was, maybe it was Friday afternoon. I think it was Friday afternoon in 2012 and whatnot, but it is, it's just, it's, you're exactly right. And what people I think kind of tend to not realize is how often these guys tee it up against each other throughout the course of the year and how close their records are, even stroke play, but round per round. I remember I was doing, trying to do some analysis of like all the potential captain's picks and I wanted to see how they were against each other. And I just thought, oh, this guy's going to blow him out of the water. But really the win percentage was like 55 to 60% across the board. So there's just so much, so much left in there to random chance to your point. But um, I'm zigzagging around a little bit from years, but I wanted to, I was kind of curious after 2012 and you mentioned you know, even when the, the U.S. loses, there's always a nice party and celebration. Was it any different in 2012, the fashion in which they lost after having a, a 10 to 4 lead that was ultimately 10 to 6 on Saturday afternoon and then then losing at Medina? Was that year any different as uh, far as the aftermath? Wow. Well, I, I think there were a lot of, uh, you know, you're drowning your sorrows that night. That yeah. was that was just uh, I mean, there were you know, there were a lot of tears after that Ryder Cup and uh it, it was that was that was a, a real low point um and, and again you know you know phil we lost to justin rose who made this incredible birdie on 17 to have the match and then birdied 18 to, to you know to to beat us one up and, and and you know there was just this incredible play going on and around the golf course and rory had that you know crazy situation where he almost missed his tee time and then went out there and played great golf and beat keegan who was playing really well that was a brutal, brutal loss, and uh, and and I do remember us all getting together in it and having a a, a big blowout that evening. But uh, man, it took a long time, you know. I mean, months and months to get over that. That was uh, a brutal way to go down. And and again, give those guys credit. Obviously, what Poulter did, you know, uh, David Faraday had that great line. I think he said uh, after uh, after Saturday's play, after Poulter ran off all those birdies on Saturday afternoon, and said, "Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a it's a tie. It's a ten six. It's all uh, it's a draw at this point, or something like that, because they had so much momentum and." I'm not uh, quoting him perfectly there, but uh, he was exactly right. They carried so much into that next day that uh, that they went out there and got it done. And uh, it was I'm, – I'm not sure I'm still over it. Huh. 
I was I was there for that one. That was an absolutely brutal one to take because it did feel like it was over that Saturday at ten to four, which we we should have known better at that point. But a um, few more here, and we'll let you get out of here. But looking at the twenty eighteen Cup, do you have any insight into any surprise pairings that we might see, or how the pod system may play out, or anything like that? I really don't. Uh, you know, they're 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 keeping you know all that stuff under wraps as they should. You know, within the team room and. Uh, I'm just fascinated to see it. You know, I'm I'm interested to see if uh, I actually think that uh, that Phil and Bryson would be a very interesting team because they're very similar type people in terms of their kind of like analytical ways they look at the game. Um, I'm I'm interested to see if Tiger. Uh, you know, there's been talk obviously about Tiger and DeChambeau. I'm interested to see if Tiger and Patrick Reed play together. Um, I think that would be an interesting team, and. Uh, I just uh, all all I know is I just want to I want to get there and I want to and I want to check it out. I I, I just think that uh, it's it's going to be epic and uh, I, I think there's some really potentially interesting teams there um, on on the other side too. I think you know Tom, there's Tommy Fleetwood who I I just think is just world world class. You know one of the very best players in in, in the game. I think it's going to be interesting to see how he fares and who they put him up with because he's got a game that translate translates really well both to foursome and a four ball. Uh, the guy just hits it like an absolute golfing god, if you will, and rolls it well too. So uh, I can't wait to see how it plays out. What's the most fun Ryder Cup match you've ever been a part of? Uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, wow. That's a good question. Wow. Give me a second here. Mm-hmm. I, I got so much to, I will say this is, this, this, this isn't going to answer your question the way what's a lot of fun at the Ryder cup is going out and watching when you're not playing. Yeah. And, uh, there, there's something to be said for not playing every match and having, you know, four or five hours to chill and going out there and just rooting on, rooting on your, 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 your teammates. And of course you're inside the ropes and you're very close and you can go out there and, you know, high five the caddy or the player and, and, and kind of, you know, just, just do anything you can to support them. Um, so there's been some, I've got some great memories of just going out there, certainly going back and watching Justin Leonard, you know, win that match in, in 99 at, at, uh, at Brookline. Um, I, I, I guess, you know, for me, my greatest memory is is Phil making ten birdies there on Sunday at Hazeltine against Sergio, uh, in a very very tense match. Um, it meant a lot. It, you had you know two guys that didn't want to lose to the other, and um, you know Phil birdied. Geez, he made so many birdies. I can't even remember them all. But we were in a tough spot there on eighteen because. Uh, Sergio stiffed it, hit it to six or seven feet, and Phil hit it 30 feet behind the hole and made this downhiller that broke a couple of directions and made it right in the middle to, to, to at that point, you know, the worst he was going to do was, uh, was tie the match. And, um, that, that, that meant a, a tremendous amount to me. And then, of course, you know, it looked at that point like the U.S. team was going to go on and win, and they did. And it was just nice to, to, to finally be, uh, to come out on top in that event. Well, if you do never caddy in a Ryder Cup again, that if that was your last match you caddied in, that uh, that's that's a good one to go out on. I was curious, yeah. did you uh, do you have to? You've talked a lot about adjusting for yardages for people being pumped up on adrenaline. What's that like in the Ryder Cup? Have you ever had to adjust for yardages for Phil just solely because of the atmosphere? Absolutely, and and that shot I just referenced where he hit it thirty feet behind the hole in eighteen was was probably me not doing a good enough job in terms of factoring in the adrenaline that Phil was feeling at that point. But yeah, you're getting as jacked there as you get anywhere else. You know, it, 
you're as jacked up there as you are Sunday at Augusta with a two-shot lead. So you've got to factor it in at least. And, and some players are different. I believe I've read that Tiger, you know, he hits it the same distance on uh, Tuesday, at, you know, in, in a practice round as he does on Sunday in the middle of a Ryder Cup or the, the last round of a major. Um, and, 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 you know, each player is different. Phil's completely different. He would hit the ball much, much further when he would get that adrenaline pumping through him. So, um uh, yeah, it's 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 as excited as as as, as those guys I think are ever going to get, and is fired up, and, uh, and I think it translates into what we all see on TV. It's just a tremendous show. You got the adrenaline pumped in me right now. I could go out and blast some nine irons, one seventy five. <laughs> Very last question. I saw some kind of high headline in the research I did, but I didn't hear the actual story uh, about how Phil almost got you arrested somehow in a Ryder Cup scenario in some way. What what is that story? Uh, actually, it wasn't a it wasn't at a Ryder Cup. It was at a U.S. Open. Okay. Uh, it was at the uh, the uh, ninety six. Uh, excuse me. It was at the. Uh, Geez, it was the, the Congressional U.S. Open that Ernie Els won. Uh, if you want me to tell a story, I'd be happy oh, to tell it. Oh, please do. So uh, I go pick him up. He's staying at a house a couple miles from the course. So he's just going to hop in my car, and we're going to drive over to player parking there at Congressional. And so uh, we do. We drive to Congressional, pull in the driveway, and it's it's for an afternoon tea time. So there's 200 spots in the parking lot, and they all seem to be filled. So we're, we can't find a place to park. So we're driving here, we're driving there, we're looking for somebody that's pulling out of a spot. And somehow we see a spot and it involves me backing up the car and and, uh, going back to where we just come from. So I stick in reverse and I'm literally backing up and I'm going a mile and a half, you know, one and a half miles an hour as I stick in reverse and go back to pull into the spot. And there was a gentleman that was walking kind of parallel to our car who was on his phone wasn't thinking about what he was doing and as we packed we we uh backed up past him he just took a hard right and walked right into the side of our car as we were backing up so he kind of you know writes himself says sorry i wasn't looking where i was going you know this and that no it's, it's all fine and we we pull in the parking spot i grab the bag head to the range and phil goes to change his shoes so I'm out there cleaning the clubs and uh, getting ready to go. It's I think I'm pretty sure it's the first round of the U.S. Open. And uh, these two policemen come over to me and tap me on the shoulder as I'm standing there on the range cleaning the clubs and said, yeah, Mr. Mackay, we need to talk to you about a hit and run you were involved in in the parking lot. What? And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? This is on the range. I mean, players and caddies are standing there. And, you know, a couple of people are turning around looking like, are you kidding me? And the guy said, uh, well, did did or did you or did you not run into a, a, a you know a gentleman in the parking lot? And I said, well, no, no. He he walked into the side of my car, and I was going you know a mile, two miles an hour at the time in reverse. This it doesn't matter. It's a hit and run. You know you didn't stick around. You know we're going to find this gentleman. All this stuff. And they said you need to come with us down to the station. And I am literally you know jumping out of my skin at this point and and just shaking my head and looking around, just dumbfounded as to what I should do. And I look past these two gentlemen these two police officers and there's phil look you know sneaking out from behind a an advertising billboard looking at me you know laughing and i realized <laughs> that he's put these guys up to it so again that was the stuff you dealt with working for phil he was a he was a pretty big practical joker and that was just yet another situation where he got the best of me and uh you know and you know you look back at it and laugh 
dude. That you had me. That that like that prank had me. I was believing that this was a real thing. So you, <laughs> yeah, that, you relate it well. All right, Bones. Thank you so much for another hour of your time. Uh, look forward to seeing you in France next week. It's going to be an awesome week, and uh, hope the trophy comes back to the U.S. But uh, best of luck with all the coverage on Golf Channel and NBC. I know uh, every listener to this podcast will be uh, tuned in and watching as well. So best of luck over there, and uh, thanks again for the time. Chris, thanks for having me. Anytime. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! 